Today we're going to read from Mark chapter 9, and it's become very popular in uh, culture to refer to the human decision-making process as a process between an elephant and a rider because it explains our behavior so well. Decision-making, changing your life, changing your behaviors, doing something new is like being a rider on top of an elephant. And the rider is like the brains who knows what should be done and knows where the situation should be going. But the elephant is like the emotions. And no matter how hard the rider tries to get that elephant to go to where it needs to go, if the elephant isn't on board, you're not heading in that way. So this is a great analogy that people have given to the human decision-making process. And think about that in your life. Don't you find that to be significantly true? Your rider says, I shouldn't be doing this bad habit. But the elephant says, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. And even though you know you shouldn't be doing it, you do it again. Now think about that. If we could get a, if we could get a our elephant on board, we could change our behavior, we could do the things that we know we should be doing in our life. And good change happens when we align our emotions with our brain to where it needs to go. And so people have said, if you can get a vision, if you can get a clear vision of where you need to head, then you can get your emotions on board and you can change your behavior and you can begin to change your life. And that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense to me. I can modify my behavior if I follow this model. If I can somehow get a good vision of where I need to go in life, if I can see it, if I can smell it, if I can taste it, well, then I'm likely to be able to get there because that elephant can start moving to where the rider knows it needs to go. If I can get a vision of what it's like to run. I remember when I was young, I used to be able to run. It was fantastic. My feet propelled me forward, and I flew through the air like a gazelle. It was amazing. And then I got old, and I tried to run, and instead of what I do is I basically fall forward, and my legs just try to keep me up, and I wheeze, and I huff. But a few years ago, I got the vision, and I do it again. And I went out, and I started running, and I was able to do it. I was able to put down the bacon and put on the running shoes. And I got to running six miles. I'm just be honest, what motivated me was COVID. I knew it was a respiratory disease and I didn't want to die. I got the vision of death and I said, I'm gonna get out there and run. And so I started running. I got up to running six miles a day and I could move forward again. And it's all because I got a vision. Think about what it's like in your job. It's hard to get up on Monday mornings, Tuesday morning, hard to get out of bed. But if you could get a vision of what it would be like to succeed, if you got a vision of what it would be like for your position to start to change the world, change the company, change the organization, change the industry, change your coworkers' personal lives, if you got a vision of that, if you could smell it, if you could taste it, if you could see the change, it wouldn't be hard to suddenly start moving in that direction. No longer would it be hard to get out of bed on Monday mornings, Tuesday mornings, because you got a mission, you got a purpose. Likewise, we have the things that we know God wants us to do in our lives. And the interesting thing about the Bible is it's not about behavior modification, although our behavior definitely changes. It's not about emotional manipulation, although our relationship with the Lord is incredibly emotional. It is about supernatural transformation. That when you get a vision of the glory of the Lord... It's not just about manipulating the elephant to where you need to go. 
It's about new life. It's not about behavior modification. It's about whatever behaviors you're doing are filled with the Holy Spirit of God bringing new life. And if we got a vision in our life of the glory of the Lord, it would change everything. And the Bible, in incredibly poetic and flowery language, tries to describe this experience of transformation, tries to describe this access that we have to God the Father through his son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he sent. Talks about being seated in the heavenlies with the Lord. It gives these mountaintop experiences in the Bible as it attempts to describe the indescribable as we approach the unapproachable. I worked hard on that sentence this week. And if we could get a vision of that, that would change our lives. And so today we're going to look at this experience in Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration. And next week we're going to look at another very similar experience that the Lord gives his followers in the ascension. Two passages that are incredibly difficult to understand because they're very strange. They're very grand. And you get done and you read it and you say, well, I don't quite get what that was all about. But the point is, is that it's not about reading it. It's about experiencing it. And we have access to God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ, and his Holy Spirit. And when we encounter that, it changes everything. You can read the Bible. You can read the passage. And your writer can get on board with the glory of God, but then you have to experience it. Because it's not a bunch of words on a page. It's a relationship that we have with the God of all creation. And life is legitimately difficult. And you're sitting there with this thing in your life, whether it be your miserable job or your failing health or your broken family, just like every single one of us is. And we sit there, and we have a hard time imagining overcoming it, being stronger than it, not being victims to it anymore, but having victory. But if you've got a vision of the glory of the Lord, suddenly it wouldn't be hard to handle those situations anymore. And that's what we need. So we're calling a series Going Up because we have access to the Father through his Spirit. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We're going to go verse by verse through this passage. It's a very difficult passage to understand, and so we'll be taking a few different rabbit trails but trying to land Land at the main point. And so beginning, Jesus prepares them for this experience. He says, some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is where God reigns and where everything happens according to the will of the Lord. I heard an atheist criticize the kingdom of God by saying it's like some sort of celestial North Korea where everything happens according to the will of the good leader. And North Korea sounds like hell on earth a dictatorship by a sinful man. But if you got a dictatorship by the perfect being in the universe, that's exactly what I want. I want him to be my dictator. I want everything to happen in my life according to the will of the good leader when it's Jesus Christ. We have a bad understanding of authority in our life because the authorities on earth are so sinful. And we distrust giving our lives fully to completely to someone or something or some institution for very good reason because no one on earth is worthy of that kind of commitment. However, Jesus is, and his kingdom will be just that, where Jesus reigns, and nothing according to his, 
Nothing that's not according to his will will ever happen again. And the kingdom of God will come when Jesus judges the earth and removes all evil. But the kingdom of God is not just in the future. And it is the kingdom of heaven. If you read through the Bible, the book of Matthew, Matthew refers to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven because Jewish people didn't say the name of God aloud, Yahweh. And it, that kind of reverence for the Lord spilled out into other areas to the point where they just didn't want to say God's name at all. And so instead of saying the kingdom of God, Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. But if you read Mark and Luke, they say the kingdom of God. In fact, my Jewish friends today, sometimes if I'm on Twitter or something, I'll see one of them reply to somebody and they'll say God and it'll be G slash D. Even today, they don't uh, feel comfortable saying the word of the Lord out of a reverence they have for God. And so the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, some of you will not see death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. Some of you won't die before you see heaven. Like, what does that mean, right? They're going to be taken up in a whirlwind of fire like Elijah. Well, the interesting thing about the kingdom of God is that it comes fully when Jesus returns, but it's actually here now as well. And so we have two different timelines going on in the world. One is you call like the kingdom of this world or, you know, whatever you want to call that. And that started when Adam sinned. And that kingdom will continue on until when Jesus returns and defeats and destroys and removes all sin. And the kingdom of God is here fully. And so that's one timeline. It started back at Genesis chapter 3 and it ends right here at Jesus' resurrection. And then you got the kingdom of God, which came to earth with Jesus Christ. And so we have this time on earth where we have competing kingdoms right now. And that is the decision. Which kingdom do we want to be a part of? Do we submit ourselves fully to the Lord? Or do we choose sin and evil? Now this is where you get into the thing where we'll do this here. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ today as your Savior, check the box. And you've become a Christian today. And we'll come and we'll pray with you afterwards and we'll give you a Bible. We'll do whatever to support you as you begin your journey in faith. But just because you've prayed a prayer of salvation, just because you've checked a box, does not mean that you are saved. The Bible gives a different picture of salvation. Some people call it lordship salvation, where Jesus Christ isn't just someone who you want to get out of the fight. It's not fire insurance. Lord, I don't want to go to hell, so I say I believe in your son. It is submission to the Lord, where you desire him over your sin where you choose him over your sin, where you choose Jesus over Satan. And that's salvation. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, we are saved. And to put your faith and trust in him means you want him. You put your faith in him over the things of this world. You put him first in your life. And you repent of any single way that you don't. And so we're saved, and we belong in Jesus Christ's kingdom, when we submit our lives to him as our complete and total dictator, he is our complete and total authority. We're going to talk about that next week as we study Ephesians and HCCU. But the Bible has so many passages about the submission of authority in it, even imperfect authorities. Romans chapter 13 says, submit to the government. First Peter says to submit to the emperor who would actually kill Peter. Peter says to submit to the man who would kill him. Why does the Bible talk so much about authority? It says, servants, obey your masters. As we talked about last week in the sermon, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Why does the Lord encourage people to submit to imperfect authorities like that? Because Jesus Christ is our ultimate perfect authority. He has authority over every single thing in our life, every thought in our head, 
Every breath that we take is all in submission to his authority. And one day when he returns, he will take that authority up, the rightful authority that he has. And that is when the kingdom of God will be here fully. But the kingdom of God just doesn't start then. It says that Jesus has brought it as he comes to earth. And so we have two different timelines going on right now. One starts at Genesis 3 and will end at Jesus' resurrection. One starts at Jesus' coming and will never end. Jesus brings the kingdom, and that one will never be destroyed. A few verses to look at at the kingdom of God. How do we know that it's here now? Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, This time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. I love your mosquitoes out here. They are so out of shape. They just have no competition. The mosquitoes are there's so few of them. They have no competition with each other. There's so many people and so few mosquitoes. They're so lazy. They're, they're not exercising. In Minnesota, where I come from, there's so much competition. There's thousands of mosquitoes to every person. And if those mosquitoes want to bite you, they've got to compete with each other. It's a free market at work. And the mosquitoes get so fast. They get so amazing. You can't even see them. They land on you and bite you and leave before you've even noticed anything and suddenly you're itching. I love the mosquitoes out here. So fat and lazy. I mean, I got no problem. I'm trained from Minnesota, people. These mosquitoes have nothing on me. I can be holding a baby and eating a snack, and I see that mosquito coming, and I've got him, and it's over, and he never saw it coming. Why can I get that mosquito so easily? Because he's so close. He's at hand. I can grab him and smush him in a second because he's right at hand. That's what the phrase at hand means. And so when Jesus comes with the kingdom, He says, it's here. The kingdom of God is here with us today. He's brought the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And if the king is here, that means his kingdom has begun. Let's take a look quick at Matthew chapter 13. Verse 31. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain seed. Matthew says heaven because he doesn't want to say the name of the Lord, the name of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make their nests in its branches. What an incredible prediction. Jesus says that he's come to bring the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. And he says it starts small, but it grows so big that all the birds can come and make their nest in it. What an amazing prediction. The kingdom of Rome, which is the one in power, used to have inscriptions on all of its buildings to the effect of the kingdom of Rome, may the God shine a and it'll never end and it'll be eternal. And the kingdom of Rome tried to kill all the Christians. They killed Peter. And the fascinating thing is this kingdom started by a carpenter born out of wedlock defeated the Roman Empire without a war. And it's still here today, defeating empire after empire after empire. The kingdom that Jesus started has not stopped after 2,000 years, and it'll never stop. What an amazing prediction. And it's huge. It started off with him and his 13 closest followers, only two of them, at his cross, that's a small seed. And it's grown to include billions of people today all across the earth. 
What an incredible prediction. And the kingdom isn't just here when he returns, it's here now and growing. And if the kingdom is here now, then the power of the kingdom is here now as well. And so Jesus begins to tell his followers about what he's doing, the power and the access to God that they have through him. Truly, I say, some are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, there's a few different possibilities for the interpretation of that verse. One is the resurrection of Jesus. When you look at how the kingdom has come with power, you can't say there is much more powerful thing than the resurrection of Jesus that changed people's lives. But it wasn't just that either. You have Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So another possible interpretation of that is the powerful gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see the coming on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. And so even after the resurrection, there was still this gift of the Spirit. And so there's a variety of really good interpretations of this verse. But I think what's happening is, is the verses in 2 through 12, which come after, are fulfillment of what Jesus is saying that comes right before. That seems to be the most logical thing to me. And so what Jesus is saying is you will see the kingdom of God come with power, and what is going to happen right now will be that visualization. And so verse 2, it says, Then after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is a Greek word. It means, it's, in the Greek, it's pronounced metamorphothe. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. And they see Jesus. It's fascinating. They see Jesus transfigured. What does that mean? Here Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. And it seems like we know why he took Peter. Right before this, Peter had a really bad week. Peter confesses that the Lord is the Christ, but he doesn't understand what kind of king Jesus is. And so Jesus tells about his death and resurrection right after that in chapter 8 in Mark. And Peter says, not a chance. You're not going to die. You're the king. He says, you're not going to die. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. That's certainly not the response Peter's looking for. So Peter had a tough week. So the Lord takes Peter with to encourage him. And Peter's somebody who needs the power of the Lord in his life to get through what he's going to need to get through. Peter's got a different vision of the kingdom of God. I went to this conference yesterday, and Francis Chan spoke, and he's like, you, you got to hear of the message of the book of Job. The Lord allows Job to suffer for his glory. Satan says, people only love you, Jesus, love you, God, because you give them stuff. Take away their stuff, and they'll curse you. And Jesus says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, if I do this to him, he'll curse you. God says, go ahead and do it and see if he does. And Job doesn't, and it's to the glory of God. As Christians, we are so blessed. God is a God of abundance who blesses us in so many ways. But the Lord will allow us to suffer for a variety of reasons. One is to destroy our idols. If the Lord is denying us of anything, it's because he wants us to go closer to him through that experience.
Another is for our witness. I think the most powerful witness we have is not the one where they say, I've been given a miracle, although that's incredibly powerful. I think the most powerful witness is the ones where they say, I haven't, and yet I still believe he's the Lord of my life. And to have that kind of strength, to go from being someone who wants blessings and riches to someone who's willing to give your life, you need a going-up experience. And so Jesus is going to strengthen Peter because he doesn't have that kind of strength right now. Do you have that kind of strength right now? As you go through whatever you're going through in your life, and you say, Lord, I want your blessings. Lord, I want your gift. Lord, I want your healing. Lord, I want your money. Lord, I want whatever. Do you have that strength to have a testimony like Job? Peter needs the strength of the Lord because he's envisioning a king which is going to come and destroy everyone and lead, and instead Jesus is going to be destroyed for the sake of everyone. We're going to come back to this experience of seeing the Lord transfigured because it's the main point of the passage, but it goes by so fast. Because what do you say about it? What did he see? The word is metamorphosis. Did he see Jesus come and he was an ugly duckling? And then he, they saw and he was turned into a handsome swan. Of, God, I didn't realize why you were ugly, lad. You're not. Like they have on that show, The Swan, right? Where they bring the lady in who doesn't know how to dress and by the time they get done, you go, wow! <laughs> what did they see? And he was transfigured before them. It doesn't say much about what they saw. But it says his clothes, doesn't even say anything about him. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And we're going to come back to that. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Why Elijah and Moses? Well, there's a few reasons why it could be that Elijah and Moses were uh, chosen. They are the three primary miracle workers throughout all of Scripture. There are actually not a lot of miracles in the Bible. People say, oh, Christians, they, so, they believe in miracles or whatever, and we don't see many miracles, and so whatever. You know, it must be fake, all these Christians. They think miracles happen all the time. And no, they, we don't actually think they happen all the time. They're not called normals. They're called miracles for a reason. And if we receive a miracle, praise the Lord, the power of God is such that he can do a miracle at any time. It's no problem for God, and that's our faith. However, we know that if the Lord does not give us what we want, it doesn't change our faith. And we don't believe miracles happen all the time because we don't see them happening all the time in Scripture. In fact, the only three times that they happen significantly are Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Try to think of a miracle beside Jonah and the whale off the top of your head that doesn't include Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, or Jesus and his disciples. And so here we see these very clustered groups of miracles to validate the message that God is giving his people, because God has a plan. And so it could be because they're the three primary miracle workers. The other reason it's very closely related is that they represent the sort of phases of God's plan of salvation and redemption. Human beings rejected God. Genesis 6, 5 says we no longer knew him. God says, I want to know you. And so he starts a relationship again with a uniquely faithful person named Abraham, gives him lots of children, says, I'm going to teach your children who I am and what I'm like so you can begin to know me again. And then that's phase one. That's Moses, right? God gives Abraham all his children, and then he starts to speak through Moses. 
Here I am and what now that all these children are here, here is what I am and here is what I'm like and here is who I am. And Moses teaches them about the Lord and the miracles validate his teaching. And the second plan is he prepares them for his coming. You have Moses and the law teaching people who God is and what he's like and you have the prophets which start to shift the focus to when is he coming? Because that's always his plan is to come and save us. That's who God is. He's a savior. And so you have the prophets and you have Elijah and Elijah performs all of these miracles. So you have the miracle workers, the three there, and you have maybe that they represent the three phases of Jesus' plans. Those are two probably the reasons or something like that, that it's Moses and Elijah. They represent these things and they appear to Jesus and they begin talking with him. And what are they talking about? Well, in Luke chapter 9, 31, it says they're talking about his death. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, he kept talking about his death, and the disciples just couldn't quite grasp what he was saying. What? You're going to die? He tells them with words. He tries to tell them with an object lesson at the Last Supper with communion to teach them and prepare them for what he's going to do. And here, if they were paying attention, they'd have another chance to learn about the situation that is going to happen. He's going to die, rise, and he's going to ascend. He's going to depart. He's talking about his departure. And Jesus wasn't talking about his flight that he was taking later that day. Later that evening, he's talking about his ascension. The Greek word for departure is exodus. It means exit or departure. And here Jesus is speaking that with Elijah and Moses. And after chapter 9, here in verse Mark, Jesus is going to teach his disciples, try to teach him two more times about his death. And Peter sees this in verse 5 and says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And he doesn't know what to say. He's like, that was amazing. Let's build a temple for all three of you. This amazing experience. And it's really the only experience that people have when they are in the presence of God in the Bible. It's fear. And we talked a little bit about Bible studies, not fear that the Lord is going to jump up and get you, not that he's going to jump out and get you, he's going to surprise you. Ha ha! You thought you were going to heaven. I got you. On a technicality. We don't have to be afraid of the Lord and that we're afraid of what he'll do. He's perfectly good, but God is so strong, he's so awesome, that when you come before him, you can't help but be terrified and fall on your face in worship. That's what they do every time they see the Lord in the Bible. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 tells us that Joshua collapsed when he experienced the presence of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 1, 28 and 3, 23 says Ezekiel collapsed. Daniel 8, 17 and 10, 15 says that Daniel collapsed when he encountered the glory of God. Acts 9, 4 and Acts 26, 14 reveal that Paul collapsed to the earth when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus. Genesis 17, 3, I don't even remember who that was. Was that Abraham? He collapsed on the road, whatever he was doing. Matthew 17, 6 records that when God's glory was manifested to Peter, James, and John, all three of these men collapsed to the ground. The transfiguration is in all three books. You can find in Matthew that these men collapsed to the ground. Revelations 1.17 tells us the apostle John collapsed, who already collapsed here, and he collapsed again in Revelations when he sees the Lord in a vision. At the end of Revelations, he collapses again when he sees the Lord. It looks like he never grew used to it. That when you see the glory of the Lord, 
You collapse in terror at your own sin and disrespect of the most greatest, most powerful, most perfect being that could possibly exist. And you don't fear the Lord because he's bad. You fear the Lord because you have sinned. That's a frightening thing to be before a holy, perfect God with sin. That's what his white clothes represent, intensely white. He's so perfect. He's so holy that when I stand before him, I can't help but bow down and collapse before him because he's so good. And God speaks in verse 7 to these terrified people. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. What if God had a high voice? Listen to him. And so it's not, these are not three special people. There's one special person, and it's Jesus. And God lets them know that. Jesus is God's son, and we have got to do a sermon series. I can't wait talking about the incredible ways that Jesus claims he's God and proves he's God. As Christians, you know, it's just, it's the spiritual blindness of this world and Satan. We can forget that Jesus was God. We can sit in church, read his word, go to church, and outside, we get outside of church, and was Jesus God again? He's God's son, but aren't we all children of God? No, actually, we're not all children of God. We are children of wrath, and we're only adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. Jesus is his son, and we put our faith in him. We become heirs of the son. But Jesus is God's son. And if you look at it, the son of a dog is a dog, the son of a duck is a duck, and the son of God is God. And Jesus is God come to earth. This is my beloved son, God says. This is the second person of the Trinity. The word became flesh. This is me come to earth. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Tell nobody what you've seen. Now there's going to come a time when he tells them to tell everybody what they've seen. And that comes when he's risen from the dead. But Jesus wants to spend time with his followers. He doesn't want to have to spend time avoiding the unbelievers and the armies that are going to come after him constantly, which they have. He wants to try to remain low-key so he can be with the people who love him and transform them through his word and through his teaching and through the miracles and through experiences like this. And so he says, don't tell anybody about me yet. It'll happen soon enough. And of course, even though he tells people not to, they go out and tell him anyway, and they'll be come for him. And so Jesus says... Keep it quiet, but not forever. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're saying this because they just saw Elijah. Kind of an interesting experience. The quote they're looking from comes from the end of the Old Testament. This was written 400 years before Jesus. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 400 years before Jesus, these were the last words written in the scriptures. They believed God had stopped talking. That's why no books of the Bible were written between that period and the time that Jesus came. And they say, why does it say Elijah must come first? And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated contempt? 
Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it had written him. And so Jesus tells that when it says Elijah's coming, it means instead of a literal Elijah, it means like one in the type of Elijah. That's what's going to make the book of Revelation so hard to understand because the Lord gives us metaphors and imagery. And here it gives them the metaphor, the imagery, whatever you want to say of Elijah. And what it actually meant was John the Baptist and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And so Jesus refers to John the Baptist as that Elijah. In 2 Kings verse 1, 7 through 8, we find out how Elijah looked and dressed and lived. And in Matthew 3, 4, we find that John copied Elijah's dress and manner of living as a way to further connect himself with that imagery, with that metaphor, with that prophecy. John understood himself to be the Elijah that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. It's not a literal sending, but one in the mold of Elijah. And Jesus explains their question And then he points back to his own suffering. You guys should be thinking about what I'm teaching you. You want to know about Elijah? You should be thinking about how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? Because they weren't on board with that kind of king and that kind of experience for themselves. They needed a transformational experience to have that kind of strength to take up the cross. He's taught them with words, And now he's beginning to motivate that elephant, or more accurately, to transform them so that they're moving in the right direction. And the answer that Jesus gives them is not words, more words, he's already given that, but he gives them a vision of his glory, of his transfiguration. Jesus gives them a vision to give them confidence of the glory that is coming after the sacrifice. I can put down the bacon and put on the running shoes if I just get a vision of how good it feels to run like a deer. And I can follow God. I can love him. I can overcome the suffering of this world if I can just get a vision of the glory of God in my life, of what what is awaiting me after the sacrifice. Whatever I want that I'm being denied the glory that God has for me is better. And whatever I'm sacrificing to follow Jesus, that glory is better. And what is that vision? A transfiguration. Well, Matthew chapter 17 says his face shone like the sun. You know, in Exodus chapter 24, they get a vision of the Lord on the mountain. This is, this is great. Get a vision of the Lord on the mountain. Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, these lucky people, and 70 elders of the Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Like what? All you got a vision was of the floor. Because you're face down. They see the God of Israel, and the only thing they can even describe is what was under his feet. And here we get a vision of Jesus transfigured, and what do they even say? You know, what did they even say? James, what did you see? Getting the dirt out of his face and that. The last thing I saw was his robe. It was super white. And the beauty of the Lord is overwhelming. And we know that it's not physical beauty. Isaiah 53, 2 says there's nothing comely about his appearance. Jesus was an ugly man. 
gives hope to, gives hope to, anyway. <laughs> I feel a lot better about myself. It's not the physical beauty, but it is beauty. And what do they have to describe the Lord? Revelations chapter one, the same John who saw this transfiguration sees a vision of the Lord. It's incredibly similar. John saw him here. And he sees him again in Revelations and it's the same thing just about. Revelations 1, chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man. A lot of people think the word son of man refers to the divinity of Christ because Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And when he says son of God, he's talking about his godliness and his divinity. And when he talks about son of man, he's talking about his humanity. Not so. Actually, son of man is talking about his divinity as well. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. As Daniel looks up in the sky, he sees the judge returning, God himself coming to judge. And he's surprised because God looks like a man. I didn't expect that. He says, one coming like the son of man. So son of man describes his human appearance, but it's referring again to his godliness. This is God coming to judge. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like British bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And so they see, see the, what, what do we have to describe the Lord? What, what's the, his holiness, his, I mean, I fell face down, I couldn't even, couldn't even stand before him. What do we have that describes that type of, holy, what's, what's the purest thing we have well, the sheep, think about what they have in the first century. They're just the things in nature. The sheep, it's the whitest thing I've ever seen. The snow, have you seen the snow in Israel? I mean, probably not very often. Have you been to the mountain and seen the snow? The most purest thing I've ever seen. That's, that's what it was like to be in his presence. And he's so intense what do you describe it like? What's the most intense thing we've got? Peter, give me the most intense thing you got. Fire. It's the first century. What do they got? They got fire. It's the most intense thing they can imagine. And power. His voice. Did you hear his voice? John, what do you got? What's the most powerful thing you've experienced in this world? Well, the, the roar. Of the waters. And the point of all this is the same thing. It's capturing the beauty of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. There's nothing more beautiful than Jesus. And it's a running theme throughout all the scriptures. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty. If I could just get a vision of him. Isaiah 33, verse 17 says, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, and you will see a land that stretches afar. There's something incredibly undignified about praising the Lord for his beauty. Just like there's something incredibly undignified about falling face down before him. We can get a great knowledge of studying God through his word, but it's a revelation of his beauty of his glory. 
that gets our emotions aligned with our knowledge. It's the awe that comes with the revelation of his beauty, his glory, his majesty, his might that gets us headed in the direction the rider knows where God is leading them. We had a ring that someone gave us. It was someone very close to Sarah's family. She had a neighbor who was like a grandma. She died at 104. She'd basically been a grandma to Sarah and her family. She lived right next door. She gave him this ring, and the ring wasn't worth much, but it was valuable to who it belonged for. And my son liked the ring. He was like, oh, I want to look at it. I want to play with it. So I like, that's cool. Well, he brought it to the beach in Minnesota, and we're out in the water, and he drops the ring in the water, and it's lake water, and it's at the beach where everyone's walking around and stirred up, and he's standing right here, and the water's that deep. He says, I dropped the ring. No problem. And I reach down to grab the ring. I know where it is. First, I go with my foot. I saw it fall. We all did. We all know right where it is. And I can't find it. That's crazy. So I close my eyes. I go under. I feel with my hand. And I can't find it. And so I go back on shore. I get my Walmart goggles. Two dollars. They're slightly clear. I put them on. I get out there. I've got like six seconds, maybe, before they just completely fog over for good. And I go down, and I'm right there. I'm like, son, stand right there. I'm, I'm going to go get the goggles. I come back. He doesn't move. I go down with the goggles. I know. The, there's no waves. There's no current. And I was just sitting there. If I could just get a vision of what's going on here would be no problem. It's right before me, but I can't grasp it. And it's exactly like our life apart from God. You can manipulate your emotions. You can modify your behavior. You can do any sort of things to change your life in a variety of ways. But what God has for you is right there. It's right before you. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it doesn't come through any sort of behavior modification. It comes through a vision of God's glory and who he is in your life. Second Peter 1, 16 through 18. It says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Christ Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom, we are, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. We have access to God the Father. And Jesus gives us a description of his access as he reveals himself to Peter, James, and John. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says... And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we can read his word and we can educate our rider, but what we need is transformation. We need an experience of the glory of the Lord in our life. And worship the Lord this morning for his beauty. Worship the Lord with complete lack of a desire to maintain your dignity because we have none before the Lord. He's so pure. He's so holy. The only logical, the only natural response is to fall down before him and worship him for his beauty. 